Hi everyone, I'm Graham Smith and welcome to this episode of the Abolish the Monarchy podcast brought to you by Republic. Republic campaigns for the abolition of the monarchy and you can find out more about us at republic.org.uk. This podcast series attempts to explore the various issues surrounding the monarchy and the democratic alternatives on offer. In this final episode of this season, I'm talking to Tom Frieda of Canadian Citizens for a Republic and Lewis Holden of New Zealand Republic. Lewis, you've been involved in New Zealand Republic for quite a long time. Uh, I believe it was set up originally in 1994. Can you just say, I mean, how long, when, when did you first get involved and what, what sort of prompted that? Um, I became involved when I was at university, which is uh, almost 20 years ago now. Um, so the group itself has been around for um, yeah, about 25 years since uh, Prime Minister Jim Bolger at the time in 1994 said it was time for New Zealand to be a republic. Uh, and I got involved basically because um, I travelled a bit around the world and had uh, a number of people start asking uh, questions like why is the Queen on the New Zealand dollar and all those sorts of things and that really started me thinking about why it is that we have um, the British monarch as a head of state. So I mean had it not really been much of an issue until that point uh, for you? I think um, it was one of those things that, you know, when you start to think about political issues and definitely about the way in which our democracy is supposed to work uh, versus how it actually works, um, you you can't go past the fact that we've got a head of state which um, is a foreign um, hereditary system uh, that we essentially get no say in. And Jim Bolger actually said, must have been around the time that Paul Keating said the same thing in Australia, that... uh, that New Zealand should be a republic, is that right? But it didn't seem to have the same uh, lasting impact on public attitudes. It didn't. Um, Bolger was a conservative, um, so he's from our National Party, which is our conservative party, and the majority of the the National Party are obviously in favour of keeping the monarchy. So that that was one thing. The other thing was um, we had a, a change of electoral system in 1996 to proportional representation, and uh, the party that sort of controlled the middle ground um, was a party called New Zealand First, um, and they were very staunchly against um, any move to a republic. So essentially, Bolger made the call in 1994. In 1996, he went into coalition with this other party, and they've pretty much blocked any any potential moves uh, along the way. The, the debate sort of waxed and waned in that time. It sort of comes about sporadically every so often. Uh, but recent polling showing that, um, particularly since um, the mid-2010s, uh, um, that there's a majority of people who support um, becoming a Republican, having our own head of state. Right, so it has moved on. Um, I mean... Tom, uh, you've been uh, involved in Citizens for a Canadian Republic for quite a long time as well. I mean, how long has this been something you've always believed in? And what I mean, where's Canada in uh, in terms of public opinion now? Well, it started for me back in the late nineties. Uh, I've always kind of been uh, an anti-monarchist, but there's never been prior to when we started citizens for a Canadian Republic, there was no Republican movement in Canada. And uh, as a matter of fact, one of the books that I read on the issue, uh, it was written by a leading scholar here in Canada, 
Uh, the book was called uh, The Republican Option in Canada, Past and Present. So it was uh, kind of divided between republicanism throughout the ages and the rise of republicanism. And the first paragraph of the book was uh, something to the effect of it's important to note that there is no republican movement in Canada. And uh, right away, it put a bad taste in my mouth. I, I enjoyed the book, but that first paragraph kind of stuck in my craw that uh, there is a, and always has been widespread Republican support in Canada. It's just that there's never been any organized movement to inform Canadians of what the options are and to correct the fallacies of the monarchy's main fan club here in Canada, the Monarchist League of Canada, which whenever the royal family was in the news, they marched somebody out to the media to pronounce that Canada loves the Queen, Canada loves the monarchy, the monarchy will last forever in Canada, blah, 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 blah. And I didn't think that really, really fit my views, nor anybody I knew. And then along came our Deputy Prime Minister, John Manley, uh, who as Industry Minister and later as Deputy Prime Minister pronounced that he was a Republican and it was time for Canada to grow up and become independent and have its own head of state. That of course created an uproar. Monarchists called him a traitor. So it really did bring the issue into the fore. That was about the late 90s, 97 or so. So I, I had a business website. The public opinion has been fairly evenly split between keeping the monarchy and the status quo. Now, I'll clarify that. The status quo doesn't mean everybody in that group are monarchists. We've, over the years, have determined that there's really only about 20% of Canadians who actually feel that Canada would be worse off without the monarchy. And th these are the hardcore monarchists. Then there's another possibly 20 to 30 percent or so who are hard hardcore Republicans who don't want anything to do with the monarchy at all. And in the middle, you've got this apathetic group who either don't know enough about the issue to comment on it or really don't care one way or the other. Yeah. The polling splits, it feels, it sounds very similar to yep. the situation in the UK. And, and I follow the polls in Australia, New Zealand, and in the UK very closely. And I, I think there is a, a parallel that uh, uh, we're not going to convince any monarchists. So we don't even bother dealing with them. But the apathetic middle ground, uh, they're, they're really... They, they want information on this, and the more information we give them, the, the better for us. In New Zealand and Canada, I mean, what's this? I mean, you, you said, Tom, that there's a, an element of apathy. I mean, I think, uh, I don't know whether that's the same in New Zealand or whether, I mean, is there a lack of awareness or concern or interest in the issue in New Zealand as well? Or is it... Uh, you know, how, how's that uh, break down? Oh, absolutely. The the overwhelming uh, message that we get um, whenever we talk about the monarchy here is that most people just don't care about it. In fact, that's been validated recently. We did a poll, um, ask a question similar to a question that was asked in Australia. Um, and it was a scientific poll. It wasn't just an online one. And the question was, who is New Zealand's head of state? Only 18% percent of people could actually um, identify it which I think is similar to what you've seen Tom 
Uh, well, we had one year where it was as low as 5% actually knew the queen was our head of state. Yeah. It's, it's since gone to something like 12, but that's still pretty abysmal. It is. And whenever you debate this issue, the underlying uh, feeling that you'll get from the general public is, well, look, you know, the queen might be on our money and, you know, maybe uh, someone who is well known around the world but we actually don't really care either way that um, she is in fact our head of state and part of the reason for that and part of what our polling showed is that one third of all New Zealanders actually think that our governor general is our head of state um, which is I think probably the reason why a large number of people don't know that the Queen is head of state. They seem to think that she's got some other role to do with the Commonwealth that isn't necessarily constitutionally linked to New Zealand, and I suspect the same is true in Australia and Canada. Um, part of the reason for that is because the Governor-Generals are really put out, especially by uh, the governments in our countries, as being fulfilling these roles. And that's a result of the evolution that's occurred since the end of the Second World War, really, where Britain has uh, really pulled back on, um, you're talking so much about the empire and all those sorts of things. Uh, but the weird thing is, as Tom uh, mentioned earlier, you do get, uh, you know, the, the monarchy's fan club and these people who are just so adamant about the importance of the monarchy and, you know, if we removed it, everything everything would fall apart and, you know, the, the flowers would stop blooming and, uh, <laughs> you know, it would never, it would never see the sun again and all these sorts of things. Um, you know, our entire legal system would collapse and, and all this sort of nonsense. So you, you get these things uh, from the monarchy's fan club, which is, you know, kind of amusing, but the underlying thing is that most people just do not care about the institution and that is actually what our problem is as a campaign is not that um, your people love the monarchy at all. Um, the truth is people don't care about it. In our country, what it, what it really takes is for us to get out there and say, look, this is actually something that is, you know, one, the Queen actually is our head of state, and two, we need to change that. Hmm. And uh, obviously you'll both be aware that in Australia there is this um, palace letters case where, Jenny Hocking is trying to get access to these letters and has just won the case in the court, uh, still waiting for the letters, I believe, to do with the dismissal of the Prime Minister by the Governor-General in 1975. And the letters imply, or, or certainly the, the implication behind the whole fight for the letters, implies that the Queen was directly involved in some way. I mean, what is there any sense in which the Queen or the, the palace here in uh, London has any direct impact on uh, the constitutional situation in New Zealand and Canada. I know, I think I'm right in saying that the Canadian Prime Minister Stephen Harper had the Governor-General suspend Parliament to get himself out of a, uh, a political tight spot. But I mean, I, I don't know, did that kind of awaken any kind of concerns about the monarchy? Well, it uh, awakened concerns about the distinction between head of government and head of state. There was a lot of debate over what power the governor general actually had to thwart the prime minister, who was basically using prorogation, or I guess imposed recess, of the of parliament to avoid a vote that would cause his government to fall so basically using the power of dissolution to uh, keep himself in power and um, getting the governor general to basically go in on it 
in, involuntarily because at the time, although there was a lot of specula speculation as to what the Governor General could legally do, this was one of the powers of the Governor General that is, uh, it's called convention. And uh, it it basically uh, there there's so many unwritten rules on on what our acting head of state or de facto head of state can do, and it's all based on on what's happened in the past. So this is the convention. So this is the way it has to go. And the convention is that the governor general can't really do anything to um, that that that's contrary to what the prime minister wants. Unless it's something really, really, really radical, like he was, you know, staging a coup or something like that. Uh, so the, the the powers of the governor general are basically limited to, you know, handing out awards and planting trees. But again, that's sign, signing documents. Than, that, that you don't have, you don't have it written in the constitution that that's the case. That's right. There is nothing in the constitution that spells out the role of the governor general. So if, there, if there was a a referendum today, we would win it, and there's no doubt about that. Uh, unfortunately, it's a little more complex in Canada. We have a amending formula that requires all of our provinces to be, uh, you know, to unanimously approve of the change to have a different head of state or to replace our head of state. And that's something that just came along in 1982. Prior to that, it was uh, seven out of 10 provinces representing 50% of the population. Right, so, I mean, that's a higher bar than in Australia where they need a majority in a majority of states. You need all the provinces to agree. All the provinces and the federal parliament too. So now that's if you go by the, the amending formulas. Recently, however, uh, in 2013, as you know, Throughout the Commonwealth, uh, um, all the the realms had to come up with a succession to the Throne Act, and uh, the UK, Australia, and New Zealand all developed their own unique uh, legislation that determined how succession to the throne would be handled, and it also covered the, the Act of Settlement and uh, male primogeniture. So, you know, it was an all-encompassing thing. Well, because we have this uh, touchy situation with, uh, with our constitution and that's different from all of the other realms, uh, the government of the day, which was conservative, did not want to rock the boat. They did not want to have a constitutional debate on this. Uh, so they decided that instead of having um, a parliamentary discussion on how to custom design uh, a, a succession to the Throne Act that was unique to Canada, they figured that process would trigger a debate on the monarchy. And to get around that, they decided the simplest thing to do was just to adopt the British succession to the Throne Act. And by doing that, they recognized that the Queen of the United Kingdom is the Queen of Canada. And now that may sound rather trivial, but it flies in the face of what monarchists have been saying for decades, that legally Canada and the UK have two distinct monarchies. It's the same queen, but two different legal entities. By recognizing the British monarchy, the, the British crown, uh, as uh, the, the crown of Canada, they just threw all of that out the window. 
it's very different to Australia, where they do, I think, recognise the Queen as being their Queen, separate to her being Absolutely. our well, Queen. Um, and since know, 2013, we don't have that here in Canada anymore. Yeah. Lewis, uh, I mean, has there been any kind of controversial constitutional event in New Zealand, or has it sort of more or less kept out of uh, out of the limelight? It's it's not really been um, I think as prominent as it has been in Australia. Um, you, know, you mentioned the Palace Letters before um, around the dismissal of uh, Gough Whitlam's government in 1975. We did come pretty close in 1984 to a uh, Prime Minister who had lost an election and was refusing the advice of the incoming government um, to implement um, some fairly urgent economic policy um, that um, may have almost bankrupted the country um, for the the actually the party that was in power going to the governor general and saying can you please remove the prime minister because he's not listening to what the incoming government's done so that that's probably the closest that we've come to any real uh, controversy I, I mentioned the implementation of proportional representation in the 90s there was a lot of debate back then about the um, potential for the Governor-General uh, to have to intervene whenever you know, there may be uh, parliamentary deadlocks because that's much more likely to happen under a proportional representation system than under a first-past-the-post one. But really they've managed to stay out of most constitutional um, issues in New Zealand and that's, that's contributed to it I think um, in terms of the you know, long-term support um, for the monarchy but a large part of it is, I think, as um, Tom mentioned, and you know, as we've seen in Australia, um, as soon as there's any suggestion uh, that the Royals or the Governor General is interfering with the democratic process, uh, we know that that's pretty much curtains for the monarchy. And that's why they've fought so desperately over these letters in Australia. And I suspect when they, um, they're supposed to be released, I understand, by the end of July, I suspect when they come out, they are going to demonstrate um, because it's have fought so hard for them not to to be released that the palace at the very least would have known um, about what the governor general in australia was about to do um, now we've started digging around here in new zealand to see if there's any way that we can get hold of any communications between the palace and our governor's general um, unfortunately under the new zealand law uh, freedom of information legislation um, all communications between uh, the governor general and the monarch and or the palace are actually confidential there's there's absolutely no way you can get any access to them um, so we actually just don't know if the queen or anyone else in the um, palace has been communicating with or interfering in our democracy which is a very bizarre situation and that's something which is the situation here where there's no we have a freedom of information act and it was actually amended uh, about five years after it came in to increase the protection of royal communications to, so whereas you could argue a public interest uh you no longer can so that's that's interesting that that also applies in new zealand um it, I, I would imagine that there'll be some royal uh lobbying for that <laughs> that kind of thing all over the place uh in all the realms um but i mean i think would i i think i'm right in saying that in in each of our countries this limitation of the powers of the Queen or the Governor-General 
is conventional. I mean, essentially, as it, as it was in Australia until 1975, the assumption was that there was no power there. Um, and in Canada until, when was it, 2009, I think. Um, and then the Governor-General did something. And I suppose there's always that risk that they, the Governor-General may do something, which then puts the whole thing into a sharper focus. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, the as I mentioned, the, the times that we've come close in New Zealand, uh, that really would have exposed uh, the powers that the Governor-General has because I think the public generally views the office as quite a sort of benign thing that, you know, goes around and opens schools and cuts ribbons and gives pointless speeches and, uh, you know, pulls out the sword and uh, dobs people on either shoulder and makes them a knight. You know, so the office is seen as a fairly benign thing. But in actual fact, um, as as we know, um, a lot of the restraints on it are simply convention, constitutional convention. Um, they, they're reasonably well known, but then you get these grey areas like, you know, Tom mentioned with the prorogation in Canada. Um, you know, the question in Australia is essentially one at what point, um, if a, a head of government in the Prime Minister has lost the confidence of um, an elected parliament, uh, uh, should they be removed from office i mean that's essentially the question in australia it's one that we haven't had come up in new zealand but um when it does um yeah i think it's going to be very interesting um it may be and look fundamentally when you look at parliamentary republics around the world and that that typically is the model that we talk about here uh where you have a separate head of state from the head of government that you would have a head of uh, state that does have those you know, special reserve powers to ensure that the system of democracy continues to work. But otherwise, you expect them to stay out of things. I think that that is the key issue when you look at things like the palace letters and what communications um, the Queen or the palace may have with our Governors General, in that it is not that they have these powers to hold a Prime Minister to account. It's that we just don't know when they may be used yep. and how they may be used. That's what the problem is. And, of course, they can't be held to account for exactly. using them, and particularly the Queen herself. Mm. I mean, um, and the, the curious... I mean, in Australia, the point that Jenny Hocking made very clear when I spoke to her uh, for this podcast was that Gough Whitlam hadn't lost the confidence of Parliament. So the lower house was clearly a Labour majority supporting him continuing. So, and that's the convention Correct, that you yeah. have the confidence of the lower house and still he was sacked and uh, uh, and uh, Fraser was put in and, and an election was called. Um, I mean, here, just before Christmas, we had a prorogation uh, which was then ruled unconstitutional by the courts. Um, the yeah, we watched thing, that very closely. We were thinking... Boy, why didn't we have a court like that? We had it. We had it happen twice. It, yeah, it's a really interesting point because what happened there was that people were saying, "Well, hang on a minute." The Queen had to do that because she was told to by the Prime Minister. Now we now have a situation where our Queen, the Constitution says, our head of state has to do something which is unconstitutional when she's told to do so, which is quite, quite an extraordinary uh, situation. So um, that raises a, a lot of questions, I think. And it, it may be, I mean, I guess the good thing in, in stable democracies like our, uh, you know, Canada, UK and New Zealand is that constitutional questions don't normally, uh, don't come up that often. But I, I think that it certainly raises um, some important questions about how that role is defined. Well, we find that the more details 
that we get into in regards to the Constitution, people kind of shut down. The issue is complex, and since it doesn't directly affect most people, unless they're like me and a few other activists who are involved in it, they really don't, as Lewis was saying, it's, it's just not high on the list of things that people think of. So the message between, you know, we don't hate the Queen, we don't hate any of the royals, we would have nothing against any of them at all. Uh, what we think is that the institution of the monarchy should be uh, one that's not part of our constitution anymore and, uh, and, 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 and in effect make us independent. Lewis, is that issue of that simple message of independence, this, this, is that your approach as well in New Zealand? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Look, uh, the, the messaging um, that you know, Tom uh, mentioned just before really comes down to emphasis. And I suppose in the UK, because the monarchy is obviously there and present, um, the argument is probably more focused on the fundamentals around you know, hereditary succession, uh, you know, something that's not democratic, that people don't have a say in. I think the, the issue is slightly different in you know, New Zealand, Canada, Australia, Jamaica, Papua New Guinea, etc., where we still have the Queen as our head of state. It is really a question now of our independence and our ability to choose for ourselves who our head of state is. And so the emphasis is probably more on that independence argument than necessarily the, you know, the, the principal argument, if you will, um, in terms of monarchy itself as a concept. We still obviously go out there and talk about that. But the, the thing is, as uh, you know, we've been discussing with our governor generals, because they're seen really as a de facto head of state, and they go off and, and represent us to the world and, you know, they turn up at the D-Day commemorations and all those sorts of things. They, they really fulfil the role of what the Queen is meant to be doing anyway. And so, as a result, the focus of our campaign really is on transitioning that office from a de facto head of state to the actual head of state. And that's what we're saying uh, is the change that needs to be made. So we're actually quite fortunate in that sense because it means that it's easy for uh, the public to conceptualise what a New Zealand head of state would actually look like. You know, they'll probably be in the office for about five years. They would only have the reserve powers, so the same powers as what the Governor-General has, although we may uh, go down the path of, as we've been discussing, spelling those out a bit more clearly um, but they would be actually democratically appointed to the role um, and they would be uh, someone who would have to be a New Zealand citizen and we were talking the other day um, about some of these issues uh, I mean going on to the wider question of the Commonwealth I, I think you're saying Lewis that a, a lot, and I, I certainly hear this in Australia, and I, I assume it's the case in Canada as well, that a lot of people equate having the monarchy with being in the Commonwealth and that sort of reassurance that getting rid of the monarchy isn't going to cause New Zealand to leave the Commonwealth uh, makes a big difference to polling numbers. Is that, uh, is that accurate? Absolutely, yeah. Look, the, the fundamental... A problem we have uh, in our campaign is that the monarchy and the Commonwealth are very much mixed up. Now, I think that's actually deliberate on the uh, royal family's point um, perspective. Sorry, simply because it gives them, uh, probably in the eyes of the British public more than anyone else, uh, the sort of additional role of saying, "Look, yo, with us you get the Commonwealth," and so we have to unpick that and say, "Well, look, actually, when you look at the modern Commonwealth." 
the vast majority of its members have their own heads of state. Um, you do have countries like uh, Malaysia um, that you know, have their own monarchy, um, but the vast majority of those members, uh, I think it's like 32 out of the 53, uh, 52 now, um, there's there's some that always leave and then join again. I think the Gambia's left and then joined again recently. Um, are republics? So those countries uh, you know, were former British colonies, um, and they now have their own uh, heads of state and now fully independent. But they're also members of the Commonwealth, and that's actually the majority situation. I think that fact in most people's um, you know, understanding of the Commonwealth actually just completely changes the conversation because when mm. people understand that, absolutely, you know, that's... Th this isn't about leaving the Commonwealth at all. They go, ah, oh, okay, well then I don't really have a problem with change at all now. It doesn't even have any bearing on royal institutions. Um, you know, it, uh, there's, there's nothing in the process of granting a royal title to an institution or whatever. There's nothing in that process that says once a country's government changes from a monarchy to a republic, that ha that has to change. And uh, these are the things that we find that tilt people in our favor. And I, I keep going back to this because we have a, a long list of, of examples, public examples, where we have turned people in our favor. Another uh, television show that we were on, uh, actually hosted by a former Prime Minister's son, Brian uh, Mulroney's son, uh, was hosting this show uh, and it was on the monarchy and he uh, put together a panel, two Republicans and two monarchists. And one of the monarchists was a member of the Monarchist League of Canada, and the other monarchist was somebody that they pulled off the street. And uh, same with us. There was me and a Republican, and they just a general public person who I didn't know. And uh, during the uh, debate, um, this one woman who they uh, wasn't part of the Monarchist League, uh, she was adamantly uh, just totally against the whole idea of getting uh, rid of the monarchy and having a republic. And so during a commercial break, it was a live show, during the commercial break, I leaned over and I explained to her that uh, becoming a republic does not mean that we get rid of the royal in Royal Canadian Mounted Police. It does not mean that our institutions change. It does not mean that we leave the Commonwealth. And I listed all the fallacies that monarchists believe. She just sat there with her eyes wide open and said, you really? And then so commercial ended, she came back on and Ben Mulroney asked her another question and she just came right out and said, you know what, I've changed my mind. <laughs> <laughs> and the guy from the Monarchist League just slid under his chair. <laughs> That's very good. I, mean, I, 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 I guess, as you were saying, Lewis, I mean, in the UK, it's our Indigenous institution. They live here, we pay for them. Um, and we don't have that sort of barrier of a governor general separating the actual institution from uh, from the the democratic process. So it's very different here. We have to we have to abolish it, whereas you only have to separate yourself uh, from it. So I mean, is it then a, a fairly minimalist position where you're you're really just saying, look, nothing really has to change. We simply redefine 
the role of the Governor General as our actual head of state. That's, well, that's essentially the... We intentionally simplify it because it really is simple. It can be complex yeah. and, and complicated and it uh, can cause people's eyes to glaze over. If we choose to go that route, we're not going to get anywhere. We're just going to spin our wheels. We have to simplify it down to what people identify with and that seems to resonate. We, we have a similar thing, uh, actually, just on that point and picking up what you were discussing um uh, graham in terms of uh, maori in new zealand uh, a local monarchy uh, that a number of the iwi or tribes uh, put together um, essentially to oppose uh, british colonization actually um, that they call the kingitanga or the uh, maori king movement um, and they have their own monarch um, which is actually an elected monarchy it's not a hereditary one um, which is a you know sort of different uh, concept I think to the the British monarchy itself but that I think is one of the uh, I suppose biggest issues in uh, New Zealand with this debate is actually the uh, position of the indigenous peoples uh, the Maori in New Zealand so we, we as a country were actually founded by a treaty between the British Crown and representatives um, of, of Maori um, and and part of that is that the relationship between Murray and the British Crown is a you know, quote-unquote special one. We've actually seen, though, in the past 20 years, quite a shift in that perception. And I think the reason for that is because the New Zealand government has really made quite a large effort um, of settling a number of these long-standing grievances over uh, things that happened during the colonial period you know particularly with um, issues such as land confiscations um, etc uh, from Maori and you know suppression of their language and, and so on so that is really changing I think the relationship between Maori and the the British monarch I think they've also seen that a lot of the things that have been claimed about the British monarchy with respect to uh, indigenous people simply aren't true um, you know, it's helped a lot by Prince Philip uh, making particular comments about Indigenous people around the world. But I think the um, the perception has definitely changed there and the constitutional position um, of the treaty, which is, I, th I think, like the issue of the monarchy in general, as Tom said, you know, legally speaking, this is actually a very straightforward issue. Um, but it is actually fundamentally an emotional one. It's an emotional one that touches on people's perceptions of our relationship with the UK, it touches on um, you know, our colonisation um, by Britain, it touches on all of these sort of emotional issues and really what we are fighting against is not uh, any sort of love or respect for monarchy but just apathy about how we confront those issues and how we move forward as a country um, in actually you know, changing our head of state. So that I would say is you know fundamentally what we're campaigning about. Mm. And I, I mean, it, it's an emotional issue here as well. I mean, some people say that you know it's Republicans being rational on one side and monarchists being emotional on the other side. And I, I've always said, well, you know, it's emotional on both sides, really. I mean, we we try to make intelligent arguments, but ultimately, it's about how different people view our country and and what's important and you know what values they want to um, enshrine in their uh, national life and so on I mean is that emotional uh, reaction so you get this you get this silly argument Graham I um, it just reminds me all the time you know people will say oh but the Queen's just a symbol you know this this wonderful argument oh she's just a symbol 
Well, yes, that's exactly the point, though. The queen is a symbol. The question is, what what does that symbolise? What what does it say about us? Because if your argument is that you know the queen is just this, um, you know, the sovereign is just this symbol, well, okay, but then you have to accept that as a symbol, uh, it symbolises all of the things that you know in the main liberal Western democracies are actually against, which is, you know, we don't like a hereditary system where people get positions of power, even if it's only soft power, um, just because of who their parents are. We don't like a system which is highly secretive and not transparent, and we don't like a system which, you know, we all have to shell out for um, with our taxes um, when we think the money could actually go either, you know, on, on public services or just not tax us in the first place. So, you know, this this symbol that we have really says a lot about us um, and you know our inability to um, you know remove it also says something about us and I think that is one of the main drivers of you know particularly um, you know campaign groups such as ours is that you know yes it, it is a symbol and we don't like that symbolism. Absolutely. I, I mean, this is something which we get a lot as well. And I, I've certainly made the same point that, you know, and also, what, are you saying that it's just a symbol, therefore it's not important? Or are you saying it's a symbol and it is important? I mean, you know, what's the argument there? And as you say, it is symbolizing everything that is, well, it's symbolizing things which are wrong and which shouldn't be supported. But it, I, does that emotional connection also hold true with the Commonwealth because I get the impression I mean, as you know I lived in Australia for several years uh, quite a long time ago now and I've spoken to you guys for uh, uh, on and off for a long time and I get the impression that Australians, Canadians and New Zealanders are more aware and conscious of the Commonwealth than people in the UK where it's, it's not really discussed very often I mean is there kind of a strong attachment to it? I think yeah, not was, really here. I'll just yeah. uh, very quickly say no, not here. Canada and Canada, we we are aware of it, and it's an argument that monarchists have. But when you ask any you know average Canadian, what does the Commonwealth do for you? They're totally stumped, and yeah. that's it. Yeah, I, I think it's a perception thing rather than a, an actual reality. Because if you ask most people. Um, what yeah? What does the the Commonwealth do for you? They'll probably at best be able to say, uh, "Well, we get the Commonwealth Games, and isn't that great?" Yeah, um, yeah. I mean that that's pretty much it. I have to say though, the, the Commonwealth of Nations as an organisation actually does a whole heap of good things that we barely ever hear about. Um, and part of the reason for that is because it just gets crowded out by the royals. Um, so, for example, they do a lot of work with uh, helping Commonwealth members with the democratic process and ensuring that you know, elections are run smoothly and fairly. Um, so there's this huge organisation, um, you know, the Commonwealth uh, Electoral um, Monitoring uh, Service, I think it's called. Um, Which is know, ironic I'm, since the head of the Commonwealth isn't elected. Well, it is, it is. But the thing is that the... Uh, institution itself the commonwealth does a lot of good but it's never um, promoted in that sense it's always promoted as if it's something to do with the royals and you know the 
the Queen's turned up at uh, wherever it is, Marlborough House in central London, and met with the Secretary General, and you know, sure. it's, it's lovely. But actually, any opportunity for uh, countries to get together and work on good causes is a good thing. We also have the Francophonie in Canada that uh, is, uh, I guess, it's the equivalent of the Commonwealth for the French-speaking world. So uh, it's so we're we get it both ways. So it those are good things, and I don't think, as you've stated, I don't, I don't think the general public really understands the Commonwealth well enough you know is this um, is this an issue that actually exercises the majority of people um, unfortunately it's not that you know our biggest challenge is not the monarchy itself it is apathy you know it's easy for us to find uh, plenty of members of parliament who support our views um, and probably probably a yeah I mean probably a majority but the thing is getting them to actually do something about it. And, you know, you understand, I mean, we're a democracy, so the MPs are looking at the issues of the day that, you know, are going to get them votes, and those are things like jobs and, you know, the economy, employment, the health system, etc. Those are the bread and butter issues. Um, and you have uh, this issue, which is an emotional fairly abstract one that doesn't necessarily affect people's day-to-day -day lives. And so that is the challenge. And I suspect the same problem applies in... You know, Jamaica, right across uh, the rest of the former Commonwealth realms, uh, Commonwealth realms, sorry, to actually get the initiative from governments to make changes. You know, I mean, and part of that is also wrapped up in um, the feeling that a number of people have that, you know, they they mightn't necessarily care for the monarchy, but they quite like the Queen. Um, so a large portion of people who actually support the monarchy are what we call Elizabethans, in that. Their support for the monarchy really has got nothing to do with the concept of the institution itself or you know hereditary selection or all those sorts of things it's simply because you know the the queen's a, a nice old lady who lives in a uh, you know pretty picturesque castle somewhere in england over there and you know isn't that lovely and why would you want to get rid of that um so <laughs> and so i mean a final question so we've gone over time a little bit but uh just to both of you really and, and just a short answer if you can i mean the what Lewis was just saying raises the question of what happens next. I mean, is the concept, is the prospect of King Charles going to change the situation for for Canadians and New Zealanders uh, in the in the future? I would say yes, it will, and that seems to be the undertone to every discussion that comes up. Is that the Queen is she's in her nineties? Uh, we're you know, we who wants to talk about the death of the Queen? I mean, at, even among Republicans, I can agree with with uh, both of you that there there are people who like the Queen as you know as a person or you know uh, as the Queen, but the institution itself is 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 a whole different matter. And uh, I I I think that uh, the vast majority of the public are going to. I hate to say it, uh, the first time the Queen goes in the hospital with something life-threatening, everyone is, uh, of course, obviously going to be uh, concerned, but uh, they're also going to be concerned about the fact that you could wake up tomorrow morning and Prince Charles will be King Charles, or whatever he wants to call himself. That scares a lot of people because they don't have the same level of affection for Charles as they do for the Queen and, and is uh, that, I, I think that's a that's a major major issue is that Lewis is that broadly the same in New Zealand absolutely yeah so um yeah you wanted a short answer so the short answer is yes um 
long long answer is you know yes that's that's absolutely true the the challenge is the same though in terms of um you know a king charles really it comes down to a question of the immediacy of the issue um, and getting politicians to actually act on it. So a large part of our campaign is actually talking about that and saying to people, look, you know, we all, we all know, as curlish as it is to talk about this, that these are the final years of the Queen's reign. Um, you need to actually take this seriously and start thinking about what we do next. And there's certain things that we could do in terms of making changes to uh, you know, the Governor-General's office to effectively put that into a position where it could actually take over as Head of State um, you know, once the inevitable happens. So, yeah, the, yes, it, it, yeah, exactly. Yes, it, yes, it does matter, um, but the question is, you know, will people actually act on it? And that's what we're here for as a campaign group. Okay, well, on that note, thank you very much to both of you, uh, Lewis Holden from New Zealand Republic and Tom Frieda from the Citizens for a Canadian Republic. Um, it's been a really interesting chat, so uh, thank you very much for joining me. Anytime, Graham. Thanks a lot. Thanks very much. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Abolish the Monarchy. This was the final episode of the current season. We'll be back in October with more podcasts about the monarchy, republics and the British Constitution. You can find all our podcasts on Republic's website or through Apple iTunes, their podcast app and on Spotify. And finally, don't forget, you can find out more about Republic at republic.org.uk, including ways you can support the campaign, whether by joining, donating or getting involved. <laughs>